This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Hi, this is Dave at thenewyorkbudget.com, and when I'm not breakdancing on the subway for money, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I've collected a ton of money over the years from nude modeling down at the community college. And I just realized what I could do with it. Two words, chop sticks. Oh, Oh, wait, okay. Are the, you're saying the millennials have now made that one word? Okay. Irregardless, after a recent awkward incident involving sriracha sauce, General So chicken, and a woman named Wendy, I realized chopsticks need two things, a spoon on the end and Bluetooth. Man, that's brilliant. More on that later, but on today's show, here's a story. What if your dream home was just about yours and suddenly the down payment money was stolen? With the rest of that story, we welcome from Frugal Beautiful, Shannon Allen. Also, Beyonce and Jay-Z are spending money like they're, well, Beyonce and Jay-Z. We'll share where that crash is going. Also, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Nikki, who has an existential money question. Happiness or more money? I know the answer to that one. And finally, we'll still leave time for my amazing trivia and some updates on my new Bluetooth chopsticks with a spoon. And here they are, two guys who don't know Kung Pao chicken from sweet and sour pork, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. So every time Doug talks, it's just like Chinese food, right? You're like really full for a second, and then like five minutes later, you're that super hungry again. That is so bad. That's so bad. Hey, hey everybody, I am Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me is the 
horrible Chinese food joke man himself. Do you like either Kung Pao chicken or whatever the I, LLC I'm said a, there? I'm a broccoli, beef and broccoli guy. And okay. uh, Mongolian I, I beef. I would have picked that. Yeah, I go there. I look like a, yeah, people walk up to me on the street. They're like, you must like beef and broccoli. You smell like beef and broccoli. <laughs> Why, thank you. That's just my cologne. But you know what they say I don't smell like? I don't smell like desperation with my money. You know why, OG? Because I use M1 Finance, because traditionally you have choices when it comes to online tools. <laughs> it's so bad. Traditional self-directed brokerages, which offer a lot of customization, but they also hit you with commissions every single trade, right? On top of that, they can be clunky and unintuitive. And for more passive investors, on the other hand, you've got this rising trend of automated brokerages that allow you to easily invest in a portfolio they manage for you. But you know what's wrong with that? You hand them over the controls. You're not in control. So you find yourself trusting some black box of software and can't really personalize a portfolio with those options. So to me, both of those have compromises, OG. So what do you do? Do you give up simplicity for control? You sacrifice control for something easy to manage. My question is this. Why compromise with your money? With M1 Finance, you don't have to. They offer a balanced solution like nothing I've ever seen before. Set up a personalized portfolio perfectly tailored to meet your needs and and your own investing goals. And then the portfolio is automatically managed by their advanced technology. The first $1,000 is free, so check it out. After that, it's only a quarter percent for accounts up to $100,000 and 0.15 for accounts over $100,000. Check out M1 Finance today on the web at M1 Finance. That's M, the number one finance.com. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance is actually the better way to go because then you tell the sponsor that we sent you, which makes them happy. You can also go to the Apple or Android store to check out their sleek app, M1 Finance. Be invested. We're invested in a big show today. Shannon Allen has just a gut-wrenching story, OG. Gut- I love this story. Gut- I mean, I don't love it, but... Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons... lessons. Yeah, happening here. But first, we got some awesome headlines, so let's move. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. First headline comes to us from time.com, their money section. This is about celebrity homes. Tour Beyonce and Jay-Z's Malibu mansion that they're renting for. Guess how much they're renting this mansion for, OG? $100,000. Higher. A month. It's not a million a month. No, but you can 4X that. $400,000 a month. An expanding family, says Jennifer Calfas, who wrote this piece, means a new house for Beyonce and Jay-Z. The power couple is renting a 16107 I'm glad they got the seven in there. Like 16100 yeah. no, don't, don't Don't jip them, that seven extra That's square footage. Right. Where's the seven? That two by three space in the pantry. Better count that. <laughs> Uh, square foot estate in Malibu, California, following the birth of their newborn twins. The whole family, which also includes the twins, big sister, Blue Ivy, has already moved into the 10 bedroom, 14 bathroom house because you got to have multiple bathrooms per 16,000 square feet is not enough per person. People, you need to, you need 10 bedrooms. The property's listed for $54.5 million, $400,000 a month they pay in rent. Yeah, if you want to rent it from them, right? No, no, no. That's what they're renting it for. They don't own the house. They are oh, renting this house. They're renting it for 400000 a month. Yes. Oh, is that all? But there's a point here to be made. And and the reason I brought this up wasn't to, wasn't to just, you know. And by the way, if you go to our link on our show notes at stackofbedjamins.com, you'll see this property. I would call it a compound. I, would, I wouldn't call it a house. I would call it a mansion. I would call it a compound. It is a, uh, it's, it's. It's massive. Yeah. But you know what? People read this stuff. They see $400,000 a month. 
that's nothing to them. I was having this conversation with a client um, a couple of weeks ago in a meeting. We were talking about vacation homes. I said people who have vacation homes paid off when they're 60 bought them when they were 40. Right. That's my assumption. I, I don't have any documented proof for that, but that's just, you know, what, what I've anecdotally observed. And, and so we were talking about this and I said, well, if you had an extra X dollars and you can put in whatever number you want, but let's say you had an extra million dollars, right? And you're like, I can get that beachfront penthouse condo on the Gulf, right? Like that's your place. Beautiful, right? Do it. But with a million dollars, like how much other stuff could you do? as it relates to vacation stuff. I mean, seriously, you could have a sinking fund of a million dollars where you go, we're just gonna take the greatest vacations ever concocted by man every year with the whole extended family, you know, or whatever your thing is. But boy, you could spend a, you could, you could spend a lot of nights in hotels across the world for a million bucks. Well, yeah. You know, over the next 40 years or whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce have tons of money and, you know, we made fun of a few weeks ago of Johnny Depp spending all that money, but clearly it's money he didn't have because they're suing each other. It sounds like he's running out of money. Yeah, he's, he's having bankrupt, some... that sort of stuff. But, Jay-Z but, and Beyonce, they got, uh, they're got. they doing okay. There's no doubt in my mind that 400000 a month is no big deal to them. I mean, it is... error? Do you say that? What's that? Is it a rounding error? <laughs> the 400000 Yeah, right. Right, like, oh, that... Oh, it is. No, think of it. Honey, write a check. No, no, it's a rounding error, right? Because... When, when they announce like the celebrity net worth, I think Jay-Z's a billionaire, isn't he? Between the two of them, they probably are together. Yeah. But when they say he's worth $1.8 billion, what's the eight in the $1.8? That's hundreds of millions, right? Right. Well, if they said he's worth $1.85 billion, what's the five? Yeah. That's tens of millions. Yeah. Right? So they'd have to say he's worth $1.854 million to get to that 400000 number, right? So... You don't even talk like that when you've got a billion dollars. Yeah, the big thing here, I think, is don't compare yourself. You know, just just people see this and they're like, oh, God, they spend so much money. Well, they spend that money because they have tons of money. And for them, you know, it's Plenty like... Plenty of people spend money that they don't have, to your point. But. Well, and that is my point, is you get these, you know, there's people that I know in my life. Um, I'm thinking of specific people that spend bunches of money. Whenever we do stuff with them, they want to do the most expensive thing ever. Like, I'm like, why do we got to go to the most expensive restaurant in town? Oh, because we're out with these people, right? Because well, it's there. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and what I know is they don't have the money. They don't, they don't have it. They, for some reason, they have this addiction to feeling like they have to keep up. They have to look good. They have to whatever. Okay. Jay-Z and Beyonce looking great in this house, but 400,000 a month, not a big deal for them. Don't compare, you know? And it makes you feel bad about yourself. if You try to compare yourself to this unattainable goal. Yeah. We got a long way to go. I was only a hip hop mogul. Dang it, mom. (laughs) Where are my dancing jeans? Where where did they go? Oh, they're still in the closet. Yeah. Yeah. And in our second headline, our social media buzz correspondent, Jamie Weiss from the Buzz Index joins us. Man, welcome back. Hey, Joe. How are you? It's great to be back with you. Well, it's it's a very exciting time because it's the start of summer. Of course, we're really busy. So we're recording this, you and I both, a little early because we're both taking vacations, which brings me to, you guys have this thing we talked about before on the show, which is you have these buzz insights. And by the way, people can get those by going to stackybenjamins.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z, and you'll go right to the page where you can sign up for the insights. But an insight I got recently 
reminded me of the road trip I'm about to take. You were talking about oil. What the heck's going on with oil? Really interesting insight that we saw here. It was specifically around sentiment relating to Marathon Oil, which is, you know, an integrated oil services company. Um, but like most oil companies, tracks the price of oil to a reasonably high correlation. And and this one is one that comes in and out of our of our index and our radar with respect to people being positive or negative on it. The last time it came into the index was back in October of 2016, and oil had sort of been moving around a little bit, but somehow people started becoming positive as oil seemed to be bottoming and we really caught a nice move in the stock we went from around 14 to a little bit over 18 in the stock in in short order and a little about maybe a month or so and then all of a sudden oil continued to drift sideways this would have been when it was trading in the mid 50s started drifting lower marathon started getting ahead of that and when we took another look at the index in January, we realized that sentiment was still high, but not nearly as high as it was. And the weighting got cut in half on that stock. So it was still in the index, but at a much lower weight. And then one month later at the February rebalance, you know, the stock had continued to drift lower by about another dollar. Oil was not really doing much and boom, it comes out of the index. So it, we sold the stock somewhere around 16 or 17 after, you know, an initial purchase of 14 and then cutting the weight in half. And then oil falls off a cliff. And as we all know, year to date, oil's down probably around 20%. We had no exposure to the to, to marathon during that downturn in oil. And then all of a sudden in June, with oil trading around $44, we get the green light again, again on marathon. People talking positively about the stock, fallen too far, valuations taken down too much. Oil seems to be bottoming here. Now's the right time to get in. I, I I see it at the gas pump. I mean, I'm paying. I paid a price today for gas, a dollar eighty-seven that I haven't seen in forever. Yeah, it's you know maybe it's that summer season coming back. Maybe it's the economy getting on good ground. There's so many factors that go into the price of oil. Sentiment, of course, being one of them. And the same goes for the companies that produce the products that we all put into our cars. Um, they really tend to have this overreaction, underreaction. I think what we've seen right now is that it's been such a weight, the price of oil. It's come down so much. The stocks have even underperformed the, the commodity itself. I think people are starting to turn positive on it, broadly speaking, that you know now's a good time to get back into the names. Well, clearly they are. I mean, just to be clear with everybody that, that might be new to the Buzz Index, what you guys do is not survey people. You don't, uh, you don't go around quizzing people about what they think. You guys just, you're like a fly on the wall with the chatter that's out there. So apparently if you bought it, there's a lot of people out there in social media world that think that oil ha- is it about them. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That discussion has moved to online platforms, right? It's, it's, you know, gone are the days where people are, you know, just comfortable listening to one investor advisors or one portfolio manager's opinion. Um, they know there's a community out there of people that do their own research, that have their own opinions on the stock, and they engage with them in online communities. And we are that fly on the wall listening to that content, listening to that conversation. And when there's enough of it, it actually really can be predictive of what people are doing and are about to do in their investment portfolios. And we're seeing that with Marathon, for example, people are really talking positively about that company from an investment perspective, saying now's the time to get back in. My goal with this segment isn't just to talk about the buzz index, but while we're on that uh, on that idea, the uh, uh, I want to address a, a letter that I got. Maybe you can help me with this because uh, this gentleman was asking me, where does the buzz index really fit in a portfolio? People may know that I have the buzz index in my portfolio. Uh, performance, 
so far this year up uh, a one and a half percent, excuse me, this month up one and a half percent. And I mentioned we're doing this a day before the month ends, but uh, right now you're at 1.5% above the S&P 500, one year uh, 5% above the S&P 500. But is this really an S&P 500 competitor? I mean, S&P 500 is passive investing. And I think, Jamie, that like when we had you and Phil back on, really, you guys are kind of where active investing is headed, don't you think? That's exactly right. You know, there's and far be it for me to tell any one of your listeners what's appropriate for them for for their own individual portfolios. But I think generally what most investors face is this decision. You know, do I take an active approach to my investment portfolio or do I take a purely passive approach? And and passive is is really just market cap weighted beta. It's the S&P 500. And for people that think that's the appropriate vehicle, there, there is no comparison to that. That's what you should be buying. Um, but for the rest of the world, they really do think that there's some value in active. It's just a matter of how do we define active? How have we defined it historically? And and how will the future define active management? And historically, it's been find a good portfolio manager, find a student of the markets, and, and hopefully this person can beat the S&P 500 over time through his skill and timing and acumen. What we're seeing today is a real shift in the way active management is being defined. It's no longer about you know meeting with company management and doing your 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 balance sheet research and your company report research. There are so many alternative data sets available to us now, really because of the internet, because of this explosion in data that exists in the world, where you can get a much better sense of the prospects for a company by looking at these large data sets. And of course, no individual can do it. But with the increase in computer power, with the with the, the relative reduction in the price of processing power, we can analyze these large data sets and get insights that we could never get before. Even the smartest portfolio manager just didn't have enough time to analyze all of this content. And I think really that's where you know the conversation is going today. We see it not only um, uh, you know amongst people online thinking about how should they be approaching you know their investment portfolios and what types of data should they be using. But in the institutional community, right, they want to understand and they clearly understand there's data out there. You know, what can we do to use this data in a new way such that we can give our portfolios a chance to outperform and, and really create something that's unique and find that magical alpha we're all looking for? Yeah. And alpha, I wanted to talk. I'm glad you said that word because that was kind of where I was going is that alpha is a manager's ability to bring something to the table that the index isn't right. And increasingly, it's difficult to find a manager who has a magic wand. There are managers who've delivered alpha. Just finding one that delivers alpha consistently is is the difficulty. So using algorithms and using systems like you guys are, or some other companies that we've talked about, it totally seems to me like that's where it's headed with active investing. But but I want to ask you, you guys did a survey around this recently uh, where you kind of showed that your whole game is alpha. Tell me about that. Yeah, we, we did a study of our portfolio returns. And this is something that you know we're seeing more and more with the institutional clients that we're talking to. They recognize that you know, you need to understand the attribution of your returns. What is driving the return? So if you're a you know, large institutional investor and you have a return from a hedge fund manager or, um, you know, some other fund that you're invested in, that manager might say, look, you know, I've given you a X percent return, but now you can do some studies that really try and break down that return to see where are those returns coming from? What factors are driving those returns? And we can put them in really 
uh, classic buckets that we can all relate to, whether that's growth or value or size or momentum or ba- quality. Basically, and we can we can look at those returns and say, are any of those returns really the key contributors to the returns of the fund overall? And if not, then what's left must be alpha from that manager's approach. Gotcha. And 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 you found and and by the way, what you're saying is. Are there any of these things that an index could have, you could have done, right? Because we're talking about passive versus active. So most of your stuff is coming from uh, large growth. Well, why, why the hell wouldn't I just own the large growth? Why wouldn't I just own the large growth index? But, you right. could, but, but when you did this, you found out that yours was none of the above. Yeah, or the vast majority, you know, north of 80, 85% of our returns were unexplainable by traditional factors, which means that their process that we use at at Buzz that is selecting securities is coming up with portfolios that can't be explained by these traditional metrics. And and therefore, that 85% of the returns that we're generating, that's our alpha. That is the unexplained you know, you can't replicate it with a passive approach. You can't replicate it with a factor approach. Therefore, the active style that we are following, and it's a rules-based style, so this is important. It's not like your old portfolio manager who can, you know, change his mind and have style drift and introduce new variables. This is a rules-based approach that is consistently deployed month in, month out, is is generating return profiles that can't be replicated using, you know, traditional passive or factor-based investment styles. So to Richard, who asked me that question, there's there's our answer. Thanks for, thanks for taking a little extra time today to answer that. But I think that answers it clearly. If, and, uh, and, and to Richard's credit, it's a great question. Absolutely. And it's a question you should be asking, not just generally, but about all the um, investments you have in your portfolio, right? Am I being compensated and getting exposure to something that I can't create for myself in a cheaper, more efficient way? And is this manager delivering some sort of value to my portfolio proposition? Back to the Buzz Insights. You can sign up for the Buzz Insights by going to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z. We've made that link for you to take you right there. So it's really easy. Uh, I absolutely dig those, Jamie. Thanks for hanging out, Jamie Wise. As always, great to be here. Happy summer holiday season. Hey, man, brother. Have, have fun Have fun with, uh, with spending a lot of money. Well, not that much money on oil, apparently. <laughs> Thanks again to Jamie Wise for coming down, talking to us again about social media. I just find the buzz index so fascinating. I think our lessons here, number one, is uh, following the buzz online. A lot of times things run contrary to what you would think when you when you look at actually the wisdom of crowds. But number two, Jay-Z and Beyonce, 400000 a month. It's chump change for them. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see there. Shannon Allen has been a friend of ours for a while, actually way, way, way back on the show when I attended my first FinCon, Financial Money Media Conference, back in Denver, what, six years ago now. I met Shannon Allen. We actually had an interview with her on one of our very early podcasts, so it's great to catch back up with Shannon. But let's say hello. Shannon has a horrific story. Let's just get into it. Shannon Allen coming down to the basement. Shannon Allen from virtualcharityruns.com joins me in the basement. Have a seat. How are you? Doing great. And yourself? 
Well, good, but y- you haven't been on the show in, I'm thinking we weren't even stacking Benjamins yet. We were still uh, two guys in your money then. I think so. It's been quite some time. I know it's been too long, but we need to talk about what happened to you. But let's start from the start, because in the beginning, Shannon, life was great. You went house hunting. I did. And you found a pretty house. Tell me about the house you found. So we live in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is known for having little pockets of quaint historic homes. Of course, I couldn't afford the most historic home area here, but we found a beautiful little neighborhood just north of the city that fit our needs, and they had beautiful homes that were built in the 1930s and 40s, some of which who had been refurbished and you know gutted and redone. We fell in love with this beautiful house built in 1934, completely redone, beautiful semi-wraparound porch, a crepe myrtle tree in the front, and a clawfoot tub in the back bathroom. So you could imagine I was pretty smitten with this house. You know, as you introduced me, we are the founders of Virtual Charity Runs here. My partner and I do a lot of dog fundraisers for dog rescues. And we were really stoked about the fact that this yard, unlike some of the other properties we had seen, had a brand new, gorgeous fenced-in yard that would be safe for our dogs or any fosters we wanted to bring home. So I was I was pretty well smitten for this house and pretty excited to be a first-time home buyer. And the negotiation for the house, it sounds like, went fine. Like your negotiation with a homeowner, maybe another realtor, like that went great. Yeah, we were actually, we were working with a flipper. So he like does this all the time. And so it was relatively straightforward. We found the house. Um, we had missed a couple others that we, you know, we wanted to sleep on it, right? Wanted to give it some time, but as you know, it's a uh, seller's market right now. Right. Um, and so things were going really, really fast. So I saw this house and was like, oh yeah, definitely want to put an offer in quickly, fit the bill for everything we needed and went relatively smoothly. Uh, they were finishing the house uh, as soon as we put the offer in. So I don't even think it was on Zillow at that point. But uh, yeah, that part went pretty smooth. Were you working with a mortgage broker or a bank when you got pre-approved for the loan? Uh, with a mortgage broker. Okay, cool. And how did you how did you meet the mortgage broker? Through a recommendation from a realtor. Okay, good. Uh, you're checking all the boxes so far, Shannon. I mean, every single thing you're telling me is all the stuff. Well, and you've been a financial blogger for a long time. Like it's all it's all the perfect thing to do. Well, I was hoping so, right? right, right, (laughs) So So the mortgage broker is somebody that a realtor knew. And then Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that signing up with that person and being pre-approved, that went fine. Yeah. I mean, I had been saving up for two years. Um, I have a steady job. I I work in marketing for my day job. And I got, you know, I had enough for 20% down. I had been saving my butt off and, you know, made sure I still had enough for an emergency fund. You know, I went over my finances to budget for all those surprise things that can come after you buy a house, you know, all the stuff you're going to need. And so, you know, they looked over my finances with a fine tooth comb, like really, because I guess I had been self-employed for a couple of years. Right. And the financing went just fine. There were there were no hitches there. I got approved for a mortgage and decided to go with a uh, 20-year mortgage. And, uh, you know, I was just going to aggressively be like that perfect little home buyer I thought I was. Right. And you've been very public about the amount of money that you put down for your down payment, I think. How much money was that? It was $52,660.57. Oh, yeah, not specific at all, Shannon. No, not at all. <laughs> right. No. So over $52,000 that you have saved in a mm-hmm. bank account. Then what happens? Then you go to the closing. Is that what happens or, or, or not the closing? What happened? What happened next that started things going in a different way than you'd hoped? 
oh uh, yeah, how did things go south for me after every everything seemed to be going so well? Yeah. Essentially, I had no idea as a first time home buyer how stressful closing was going to be because it had been going so well. I like to have expectations up front so I can plan and prepare. And because I work full time and I do fundraisers for dogs, you know, I try to get all my ducks in a row so closing would go as smoothly as possible. Admittedly, I was a bit frustrated when closing came and I felt like I wasn't given the information I needed in a timely fashion to get to the bank. I asked a couple questions about whether I could do a cashier's check. Didn't really hear back from people. I did call the uh, title company. I didn't really hear back. It was very hurried and confusing I can't trying t- to go into close. Yeah, and I can't tell you, by the way, how many times when I was a financial planner, how many times that that happened. It seemed right. like every single closing I hear about I feel like nothing gets done until like the day before. And then they want you to jump through 50 million hoops that are impossible for you to jump through. Yeah, it was absolutely so God awful stressful that I was in a four hour long meeting doing a presentation uh, with, you know, with my bosses and people I really needed to engage with. And I was so stressed because I didn't get calls back. I felt like nobody was answering my questions at that point. And basically, as as you said, with many homeowners, one thing I wasn't prepared for was the hurry up and wait of yeah. closing on your home, yeah. where you're asking questions, you're trying to get answers, and then they answer you and expect you to drop everything and get to the bank and take care of it right then and there. That's amazing. So they wanted you to go to the bank or they wanted you to wire money. What did they want you to do? Well, I wanted to write a cashier's check to close my home. You know, as you can imagine, $52,660 and 57 cents is a lot of money for a first time home buyer, especially I'm a gal buying it on my own. So it was like the biggest deal I've ever had. And so I wanted to have that, you know, I wanted to have the check in my hot little hand so I could hand it off, you know, the day of closing. And I did ask if I could have a cashier's check, but I didn't really get a straight answer. And I felt like, the title company was really pushing for a wire because it's faster. And, you know, they said, you know, it'll hold up close a little bit. If you don't wire the money, it's just smoother. I didn't feel quite right about that, but I waited for the wire information to come through and eventually went through with a wire. Okay. So then, so they send that to your work, the, the thing for you to wire over $52,000, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, they send it via email. Yeah. Okay. And then you sign the th- the thing virtually, I suppose, then on email. And what are you giving them? You're giving them your account number and then they fill in an account number that it's going to. Is that what happens? No, actually what happens with a lot of these uh, transactions is that when they want you to wire money, they will send you your wire information on a printed document on letterhead that's in an encrypted email that you need to open. Okay. So then you're supposed to take that email to your bank and wire the money to your closing company. From the bank. So you go to the bank and then they do a wire from the bank. So you went down. Yeah. So you still then you still then had to had to go down to the bank, which mm-hmm. you could have gone down to the bank and gotten a cashier's check, but they don't want to do that. No, because it's apparently yeah. a little bit easier for them just to get the cash in hand with a wire. Okay. So you go down to the bank, you've got the information and w- which bank is your bank? I bank with Chase. Okay. So you go down to Chase and you, you meet with a teller and what, or you meet with a teller or a bank manager or what happens then? Well, I pulled up the information on my phone as many of us do, right? I mean, just a little bit of backstory of, of how things got a little bit stressful at the end was I called, emailed, tried to get information. I had you know seen the email and all this fun stuff. 
And uh, I did not get my wire information before close of business day, the day before I was to close at 1 p.m. on a Friday. Oh. So I knew I would have to rush to the bank first thing at 9 a.m. when the bank opened so I could get my wire processed in time with four hours to clear before my 1 p.m. appointment. So I didn't have wire information with a whole heck of a lot of time. Like I said, I was in a four-hour meeting. It was pretty stressful. I wasn't getting my questions answered. And so, of course, that morning, I know I'm going to the bank and I pull up the information on my phone because I'm rushing to this point at this point to A, get to the bank, B, get to meetings in the morning, and then C, close on my home at 1 p.m. Yep. And that's, that's uh, where things can get a little dicey. Wow. So then you give you give them... What number do you give them? You have to give them the number of the account that the money's mm-hmm. supposed to be wired to. Right. Right. So you give and, them, you give them that number and then they take your over fifty two thousand dollars. Yes. And you get some kind of a receipt that said that it went to this account? Yeah, you'll get a printout of saying where it goes. Okay. When when it's done. Okay. So the wire's done. Uh-huh. I guess you leave the bank and you're pretty happy now, I would imagine. No, I wasn't. And, uh, you know, not to, to jump ahead on this story, Yeah, but I was pretty stressed out by the whole thing. I felt like nobody was answering my questions Okay, and where things went a little awry for me personally was that morning I received an email that I thought was a little bit odd. I get this email early in the morning before anything's open saying that there was a last minute change to uh... my, my closing information. And I immediately think that's just really bizarre, right? But of course, at that point, I was very frustrated with the fact that I didn't feel the title company really cared about me. They weren't answering my questions. They, I didn't feel like they were really taking me seriously as a, as a home buyer. Yeah. So I sent this email to my two real estate agents and said, hey, guys, have you ever worked with this title company before? I thought this email was really unprofessional. It doesn't seem right. Is this normal to get last minute changes right before you head to the bank? And my real estate agents, one did not reply at all. The other one said, oh, sorry for the hassle or something to that effect. Yeah, because of the fact that this crap, as I said before, happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it totally happens all the time. And, you know, you and I are suspicious people being being financial people. So normally I wouldn't do it. But I'll tell you, being a financial planner, as long as I was, the last minute change like this hurt it all the time. So you sent the money to the new place. Yes. Yes. And then what happens? So I go to work at that point. It's about 11 in the morning. I wired the money first thing at 9 a.m. around the time the bank opened. I rushed to work so I could get things out of the way. And my boss actually sends me home. My boss is a really great person. And she could tell that I was a nervous wreck because I felt like the closing was just so stressful uh, and it shouldn't have been. And so she sends me home at around 11 in the morning. Just, hey, girl, just go home. Focus on closing on your house. Take the day off for yourself. So I really appreciated that. And I got a text message, oddly enough, which I apparently hate text messages. I think they're, you know, not the most effective way to communicate. But I got a text message from the title company finally giving me the address to where we would have the closing appointment because they have several locations and asking me when I would be sending the wire. Oh, and your stomach goes, I can just imagine. Yeah, it took me a second because I said I already sent the wire. Right. Because at that point, you know, I'm trying to put the coordinates into my, you know, into Google Maps and get ready to, you know, hike over for the appointment. And I sit down for a second and and I'm like, I already sent the money. And they go, what? You know, show us the receipt. So and I'm texting them this the whole time, which I thought was really bizarre. 
And then I get the phone call of like, you need to call the bank right now. From the title company. They finally call me and say, you need to call your bank right now. And they could have, they could have called you 500 times and they pick up the phone when it's too late. Right. Oh, so what happens then? I got phone calls from people at the title company I had never spoken to or dealt with before. It got escalated. I got a call from, I believe, the president of the title company apologizing uh, because, you know, just to, for spoilers, basically my money was sent to the wrong place yeah. and a very fraudulent, terrible, scammy Nigerian prince kind of place. Wow. Um, and and it, I, it mm-hmm. also it also turns out not to cut you off, but it also turns out you're not the only one who this has happened to before. No. And that was what was so terrible. They had told me that this has happened like 30 to 60 times in the last year. Unbelievable. And and how does the hacker get the information about you? Do they have spyware on, on the computer there? Like, where do you think that the bad thing happened? Yeah. Where do things go wrong? Well, it can happen in a number of ways, but eventually, long story short, Somebody, one of the professionals you as a consumer are working with, their email becomes compromised at some point. And what's really disgusting about this type of scam is that these hackers will somehow infiltrate an email. Later, I did find out my email was not compromised, thankfully. Somebody at the title companies, from what I came to understand, their email was compromised. And these scammers wait in the wings through all of the emails back and forth between the real estate agents, the closing company, the bank, whoever's involved, and they wait until the buyer is just getting ready to go to the bank and make a wire or get the check. And they know, they, these scammers know how disorganized this process is. I mean, they do. It, it's so infamous. It's the most beautiful, I mean, I hate to put it in flowery, like, man, this is awesome terms, but, mm-hmm. but, but it, it's the most beautiful scam because it's the perfect time for them to come in. Yes. Yeah, it, it really felt like I was served up on a silver platter for these scammers. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's almost too good. Like if I w- wasn't an honest person now knowing what I know and I, I had no conscious, I would say it would be the easiest way to make money is to, to rip off these people. Because essentially what happens is, like I said, the emails are compromised. They sit, they wait, they watch, then they scrape the information. In my case, the information, including the signatures of my my mortgage broker and part of the chain that I wasn't even on yet was included in these in these emails. So like there was history on these chains until I was looped in. Right. Yeah. And then how they infiltrate the scam is then at that point, after they've scraped the information they need, they will then create mock email addresses that look almost like the real thing. So if you're like most people who you're pulling up your information on the way to the bank or they sent you a last minute change, you're looking on your phone you may not click through like you do on a different, uh, like on your uh, laptop to see that these aren't quite right because they will mirror them. So they almost look like the same thing, except they're off by maybe a character or a number. And I'll tell you, both of my real estate agents had Gmail accounts. So those are even easier to fake. Right, right. Well, I would think there are these rules for investors. I mean, so we'll I'll start off with savings accounts. You know, you've got FDIC insurance. Mm-hmm. With financial accounts, you've got this SIPC insurance, which if if your broker runs away with your money, your money mm-hmm. is protected that way. It would seem like the title agency then has some type of insurance then if this happens. So did the did the title company then say, hey, this is this is clearly their problem and we've got this insurance and we're going to take care of it and everything's going to be okay. 
Well, you know, just taking a quick step back uh, after they send you this fraudulent email and you send the money, it was a pretty convincing scam. Yeah. And essentially leading into this, you go to the bank with the wrong account information because it looks pretty much exactly like what the uh, title company was was supposed to have, have sent me. Right. I mean, it's very similar. Sometimes they'll just swap out a phone number, which they can get for free on Google Voice. They can even impersonate your title company since you may not have ever spoken to them before. And then they send you to the bank with the wrong information and the bank doesn't verify it either. Right. And so, yeah, when you find out, uh-oh, I sent my money to the wrong place. I hate to tell you, but if you sent a wire, you are SOL. You so, are not insured. That money is not protected. The and the reason why title companies love to do it is because if a, che a check bounces, it's their problem. If a wire gets screwed up, it's you, the consumer's fault. Oh, wow. So because you wired the money, there, mm -hmm. is, there is no, there's no insurance. There's nothing. So the title company even apologizes, but when it comes to making this $52,000 problem right, they start backing away? Well, and this is where it got really personally painful for me, was I didn't even know what to do. Like, I literally sat there that day, just, I need to do something, but there was not much information online. Sure. When the title company, various officers called me to apologize and freak out, they offered to look into this for me which was the worst thing because I thought they were on it. They said, hey, we have a real, quote, bulldog of a gal that'll help you get, you know, your money back. She's gotten, you know, uh, had an 80% success rate, all this other stuff. So this happened on Friday afternoon. It was the longest weekend of my life. I filed with the IC3, which is the FBI uh, Digital Crimes Unit. Okay. And then I waited till Monday because, you know, the, the banks are closed. Everything's closed. Wires. Um, the wire offices are not open on Saturdays at all. And I didn't know that. So I spent hours just being routed around via Chase Bank just to see if they were able to cancel the wire. And Monday comes, I get a phone call from the title company and they go, oh, whoopsie. You know, we said we could help you, but due to privacy banking, privacy laws, we can't help you at all. And at that point, I almost lost my mind because you and I both know, unless you have power of attorney or your spouse, or have some reason to access somebody's financial records, nobody can get into your bank account. That's one protection you and I have as consumers. So I just like nearly lost my mind. I said, then why did you even offer? If you really couldn't help me, why would you make me wait until Monday to tell me that you as a title company actually had no power to help me whatsoever? Yeah, because now the scammer's getting farther and farther away every day. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's just bought time. It's just bought them some time. What about the Chase people? Because you said you spent the weekend working with Chase. What happened there? Well, I spent a lot of time on the phone with Chase. And one thing I did that, you know, might be helpful for anyone. I hope nobody's a victim of this crime. But I also called the recipient bank, too. I filed a fraudulent report with Chase. That took forever because even though this happens a lot, don't expect the institutions to know how to handle you as a consumer. They really don't. You'll expect to get passed around a whole heck of a lot. And I basically just wanted to keep calling and say, hey, I know I filed this fraud report. Are there any updates? Because at this point, you can imagine I was grasping at straws. Absolutely. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with Chase. And the, and, and the recipient bank is which bank? Uh, bank of America. Okay. That's who the hacker had as a bank. Yes. Okay, so, and it seems weird because you know what account it went into. Bank of America knows who owns that account. It, right. se it seems like Bank of America might be able to do something about it. 
And you know, that was one of the most frustrating things I spent literally, cause I called in for work after this happened. I took several personal days because it was the most important thing for me to have assurances that, you know, whether I'm getting it back or not, I need an answer and I need it fast. Right. You know, cause I'm still closing, yeah. you know, hopefully on a house or not closing on a house. People want to know everyone's pressuring you as the buyer to get your, your, your junk together to see if you're going to close or not. And so I called Bank of America and I called Chase and they didn't have answers for me for almost a week, even though I had a week. A, yeah, a week, even though I had a police report, even though I had uh, filed with the IC3, my realtor, the buyer, the title company, we all said it was fraudulent. But what I come to find out later is that banks don't like to play nicely together because they're afraid of getting sued. Sure. So while they're figuring it out, try not to sue one another. Your money is probably in Yugoslavia by that point. Well, what went on with the closing then? Because so you had this closing that was supposed to happen. It obviously didn't happen. You know, you got this guy who has been a nice guy on the other side, but you're now going against the contractual terms of the closing. You can feel your house slipping away. Yes. And I mean, we were running out of time at our apartment, so we were worried about where we would ha we would live and all these things. You know, you're already packed up, ready to go. Your life is in boxes. And basically, you know, one of the most heartbreaking points of the story was literally when the title company called me the day of close and asked me if I still wanted to come in for my one o'clock appointment. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, I want to come in. I would love to come in. If somebody yeah, could find I would absolutely love to close on my house. Are you kidding me? And that's when I, I called my real estate agent and I, I lost my mind for a brief second before I could gain my composure. And I said, why in the heck would they ask somebody who just got ripped off at their negligence for their life savings? How in the world could I afford to come in the same day if I had an extra $50,000 laying around? You bet. I would have, you know, I would have put that money, $100,000 down towards the house. <laughs> but it was like a slap in the face. I said, you know, wouldn't I be fraudulent myself if I came in and signed all these papers and I have no check to give you? Like, I could not believe that the title company actually asked me if I still wanted to close. Unbelievable. What this is another question is that the, you know, your real estate people, I understand they probably can't help a ton, but mm -hmm. they they're losing a ton of commission if this thing doesn't go through. So it seems like they might be burning up the phones trying to make sure that this gets sorted out. Uh, what did your real estate people do? To be honest, I think my real estate people were a little bit concerned about litigation that might go if I were to end up not being able to retrieve my funds because I reached out to them and asked, Hey, does this email seem fishy to you? And they didn't say anything and catch it. Right. There is come to find out some form of liability where a consumer could, you know, go after the real estate agent for not being an advocate for the consumer. So I felt that the relationship definitely changed at that point between me and my real estate agents. All of a sudden they're backing away from you. Yeah. I was like a leper. Like, of course they would text me to check in, which was also really kind of hurtful and odd. Sure. Uh, I never really got personal phone calls after the first day. I got a lot of text messages like, how's it looking? Did you get the money back? Are you okay? But it was always via text message, which I think was part of the fear that everyone had that I would get a lawyer after this was all said and done. And it, it, well, it's, it's amazing. When did things finally start turning around? Things started finally turning around after I spent hours upon hours on the phone with both Bank of America and Chase, I got on social media. And finally, about a week into this saga, 
I got a personal phone call because I was pretty vocal on Twitter. I got a personal phone call from the customer care team at Bank of America, and they had news that the funds were being frozen at the recipient bank. So at Bank of America, my funds had not left the bank yet, which was nothing short of a miracle. That is a miracle because I thought that money was gone the second that they transferred it. Yes. And that's why wires are so terrible. Wires move fast. Banks, police departments, and your title company will move slow. And it's agonizing to think that literally in 24 hours, especially when they're domestic transfers, your wire is gone within hours, usually same day. That's why they're so appealing. And if it's going overseas, all a hacker has to do is transfer to a couple domestic accounts to make the trail of, of research get longer and longer to follow that trail. And then they just hop, skip and jump that money overseas and that 48 hour uh, hold that they have typically for overseas transfers. Well, it takes investigators a long time to catch up to where that money ends up. So, what's frustrating for me to hear is that you have uh, your Twitter account, Frugal Beautiful. You have over 9,000 people following you on Twitter, and you have lots of influential friends that also have lots of people. It seems disheartening, and it kind of seems to me like the reason that they wanted to make this go away was for that reason. Like, if somebody's listening to this and they don't have 9,000 followers on Twitter, what do they do? I know. That's what makes me so like even more bitterly anger about the fact that, that this happened. I was very fortunate. You know, I'm a personal finance writer. I've been, you know, blogging at frugal beautiful for six years. So I have quite, you know, quite the community. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I was even angrier for all the people that might not have a resource like I did. And I just felt like, you know, Twitter was a huge resource for me to get attention. I was on the horn every five seconds. It seemed like, but for somebody else, what I'm suggesting is that the institutions themselves need to change yeah. because we shouldn't be leaving it up to the consumer to have to fight in a death match to try and get their funds back and protect themselves. The institutions need to make these easy changes to better protect and inform consumers. When, when, when the funds got frozen, how long was it for you to get your money? It was another, I want to say about a week or a week and a half before I got them back. And what was bad about that uh, is even though Bank of America said they had my money, they could not come to an agreement with Chase to release liability from each other, uh, each other as banks to return my funds. <laughs> I'm sorry. So I, I literally spent even more time on the phone, like every lunch break I could have, you know, um, I would usually have to go to work late or come in early so I could get on the phone, you know, leave work a little early so I could get on the phone before they closed for the day. My case got escalated to the highest office, the executive office of both banks. And literally where it came to a head was literally I had about a day or so before my extended close where like the seller would not extend the close any longer. Right. And, you know, we were running, literally running out of time. And I got off the phone with Chase. Chase told me, we're so sorry. There's nothing we can do. Bank of America needs to issue a hold harmless letter to release liability from us. Okay. So I get on the phone with Bank of America and Bank of America is like, no, we're not going to cooperate. And so basically both of them said it was the other bank's fault. And you're done. You feel like you're done at this point. Yeah. That's when, that's probably the second time I lost my composure on the phone. Uh, I work in social media, customer care. So I understand upset people and I try to never, ever be mean to people on the phone, but that's when I lost my composure to Bank of America. And I said, 
You're telling me my money is hostage. I'm about to lose my home. I just survived this terrible wire fraud. And you're telling me there's nothing you can do to release my funds? Like nothing? They're just going to sit there? Where do they go? I wanted answers, as you can imagine. And how, uh, how did the logjam finally break? Oh, well, thankfully, there was an FBI agent in San Antonio who works on the digital crimes unit. And I basically wrote him an email in desperation. And I said, Bank of America has told me they have my money, but they will not release it because they can't come to a legal agreement with Chase Bank. So they don't sue each other in the future for whatever reason. And he said, Gur, I'm annoyed. You know, he's sticking up for the little guy. At least somebody was in this whole case. And eventually, uh, Bank of America, I gave Bank of America his contact information and vice versa. I emailed everybody, called everybody, made sure they could all chat together. And somehow they worked together that because it was an open FBI investigation for uh, at that point, because it was over $50,000 that expedited the release of my funds. And by ex expedited, I mean, it was still the most painful couple weeks of my life. Uh. So it was definitely not quick, but it was much quicker than some, you know, poor folks out there that have their money in holding for who knows how long. But luckily the seller hung in there. Yeah. Luckily, I mean, in my case, to my chagrin, he was a flipper which sometimes is good and sometimes is right, bad. Right. But in this case, he had other properties he was unloading and working on. So that could buy me a little bit more time versus a family who definitely had to hit the road. Wow. Well, thank you for spending some time telling that story. This is the longest interview we've done in a long time, but it, it's also the most horrible train wreck story, Shannon. And I'm so sorry it happened to you. Yeah, I'm just really lucky. The FBI had told me that uh, my money was as good as gone. And so that was a pretty devastating oh. couple weeks. Um, if I had any advice for anybody out there, please, please, please make sure you send a check instead of a wire. And also make sure if this does happen to you, that you file with the IC3 unit of the FBI, call both banks and get on the horn and protect yourself. Because unfortunately, the way things stand with title companies, mortgage companies and real estate brokers, they're not doing pretty much anything to really protect consumers at that point at this point. And until that changes, you have to protect yourself. And I wish somebody had just told me I could have avoided this whole thing. Yeah. Your site, we have to tell people about virtualcharityruns.com. Tell everybody exactly what you do there. Oh, well, yeah. So we are kind of a bunch of weirdos who love to run and we love earning medals. And we put that to good use a couple years ago. We're both, uh, me and my partner, Aaron, we both have rescued two dogs and really care about helping rescues in need. So basically, if you care about dog rescue and you want to get in shape, you can sign up for an event and we run them every month. You get a real medal for running a mile, 5K or 10K, and the proceeds go to help rescues in need who need financial support. That's awesome. And we'll link to virtualcharityruns.com on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Shannon, thanks for hanging out. Well, thank you so much. Hi everyone, it's Joe's mom's neighbor Doug here. I'll get to my amazing trivia in just a second. Cool your jets. First, let's go over something even better. My Bluetooth-enabled spoon-on-the-end chopstick, or as I've come to call it, the chop tooth. TM, all rights reserved. Things are going along great. I've already met some Russian investors. Online, of course, because that's how you do it these days. But safety first, as Joe's mom says, and we are ready to roll. Thanks to Shannon Allen's story, I know not to send my money just anywhere. I triple check that the money was going to the right bank account, which has successfully been wired to my new friends in Russia. Man, they're great guys. Let's get on to the trivia while I wait to hear back from them. 
Identity theft and fraud is on the rise, but how much did the percentage of consumers impacted rise from 2015 to 2016? talked about this stat before, but this is scary. According to a 2016 Gallup poll, 48% of all Americans don't own any stock. And I realize it can be daunting when it's time to start something new, but here's a great thing. Getting invested is more to do with taking baby steps than leaping headfirst into Wall Street. Here's Brian Barnes, founder of M1 Finance, on just how easy it is to be invested. So you just either log on to the website or use the mobile application. We're native on Android and iOS, and it takes about three minutes, and your first $1,000 that you deposit is managed for free. I'd love to say the free $1,000 is a special deal I made for you, but uh, Brian and M1 Finance are that good to everybody. With M1, you can select from one of dozens of professionally designed portfolio pies, or you can customize it, as mom says, to your heart's content. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance for more. That's stackybenjamins.com. M, the number one, finance.com for more. So just fire up their mobile app, M1 Finance, be invested. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the trivia segment. So here's a question. You know, hypothetically, how long should you wait before you send a follow-up email after you send a large sum of money to Russia? I'm just, and I'm asking for a friend, you know. So let's get back to something more fun. Today's trivia. Before the break, I asked this question. How big of a percent did identity theft rise from 2015 to 2016? The answer, 16%. That rise means 15.4 million consumers were victims, involving 16 billion dollars. Touchy subject for me? Yeah, just a little. See ya. You weren't far off. In the ballpark. Yeah, you said 12. That's not bad. 16% rise in one year. By the way, we will look for 2017 numbers. Uh, We're not yet. So at the time that we did this, but 16% in a year. And yet people think, remember we had uh, Michael Bremer on? People think that identity theft is falling, like it's not going to happen to me. And yet there's more and more stories all the time. I think we just get numb to it, don't you? Yeah, I kind of feel like it won't happen to me either. But gosh, how many times in the last two years have you gotten a phone call from credit card company going, hey, uh, did you buy a can of gas out in uh, middle of nowhere, Maine or Nebraska or so? just some odd place? You're like, uh, no, no. Okay, sir, we're sending you a new card. Yeah, we just I mean, got- that's a function of that. I mean, that's not draining your bank account identity theft, but somebody stole your stuff, you know? Yep. I just got a new card last week. Got a phone call from my credit card, said, uh, you do this. Nope. Oh, we're going to send you brand new cards. So, which is fantastic because, you know, we don't have anything. It's nice that they keep track of it. Yeah. But what's cool is we don't have any automatic payments coming out of that so that we get the reward points or anything. So that's not going to suck at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of times they can keep those going. That was called sarcasm. Yeah. I hope so. No. No, I'm serious. Like on the last one that we had, the the person called me and said, you don't have to worry about changing any of it because it'll still work. Oh, good. I didn't even ask that question. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency are disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on the two things you value most. OG, what are those two things you value most? That I value most? Yeah. Water sports and barbecue. 
you can tell that your brain's on vacation. Your brain's <laughs> totally on vacation. How about your family and your time? Because you do both with those, right? Yes. I like to eat barbecue with my family. And with my time, I like to ride a jet ski. Yes. They are backed by industry giant Mass Mutual, and they've created a high-quality, affordable term life and policy that you can purchase entirely I love that word entirely online and qualified healthy applicants. Bada boom, bada bing. You can even skip the medical exam. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven life. Now to learn more about life insurance, the modern way stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven life. Hey, we've got this question from our Facebook group, the basement head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash basement to find the link to our mm. closed Facebook group. But this was this was an interesting question here from Nikki. And she said, I'm asking myself some big questions right now. And I want to get your take on this, OG, because I love these financial planning questions. When people would bring these to the table, this is what life is all about for me. Ask myself okay. some big questions right now. 40 years old with a 10-year-old. Kids' college fund is all set thanks to a grandparent. Heard that. What's that? She said 40-year-old with a 10-year-old. I went, heard that. Kids... Kids college fund, I'm talking too fast, is uh, all set thanks to a grandparent. I have a little nest egg tucked away myself. Quit corporate life a couple years ago to work in a school. The job I really want requires me to finish my BA. I stopped at Associates for dumb reasons. And then to get a certification, it'll take another 18 to 24 months to complete. Is it worth it financially at this point in my life to spend the next four years back in school to get a degree for something I won't ever make big bucks doing? but I'll feel happy about doing. I know really only I can figure this out, but your thoughts. I, I love that question. Love, love, love that people are asking that type of question because often financial planning isn't about more money. It's about this. It's about figuring out the strategy to do what you really want to do. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I think when it comes to college stuff in particular or going back to school, you got to find wherever the break even is. And if there's not ever going to be one, then you purely are doing it for happiness, right? If if you look at it and say, you know, I make 50 grand a year now in my job. If I get this degree and certification program, I'll make 50 grand a year, but I'll be doing the thing that I like. Then you're paying for that utility, right? You're paying for the the happiness. That's the cost of it. If there is some marginal increase or maybe a trajectory that's different, right? You don't see the you don't see an increase in compensation right away, but put you on a different path, you know, maybe, you know, a different promotion schedule or something like that down the line, you know, you can offset it that way too. I will challenge you on the four year thing, just because traditionally they say you have quote two years left of school doesn't mean you have to take two years to get it done. You know, you can go as fast as you want. There's no law against being done with all of your schooling in one year. Well, and I was actually thinking the opposite. I'm thinking if there's no financial payoff, why not even stretch it out so that you make sure it doesn't harm your financial picture? You know what I mean? Uh, take as much time as you want. Just don't go into debt. Don't do it. If you're going to spend a bunch of money on it that you'll never recoup, why not do it a little piece at a time? You know, I mean, when I finished college, I didn't understand how financial aid worked or I totally would have finished quicker, but I didn't get it. I didn't ask any questions. I just decided I had to work a ton of different jobs. And so I was taking just a couple classes at a time to finish out my BA totally just so I wouldn't get into a ton of debt. Yeah. I guess I was just assuming that maybe the money's set aside or something like that, or you can cash flow to, to pay for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, um, I, t- I totally get but, that. Uh, Speed it. Right. But yeah. If you, if, if you've got the money set aside and, or you can just pay it out of cash flow, slow pain or fast pain, 
just get through it and be done with it and then go do the happy thing. Yeah. Joe's point is, is really valid. If you're going to end up in, you know, $80,000 of debt. Well, first of all, I just wouldn't do it then. But you know, if it means that you have to spread it out over the next 10 years, so be it. I mean, 50 is not that old. So I've been told. <laughs> so, why are you looking at me like that? It's, allegedly it's about halfway. Yeah. So you see my uh, finger in the air there? I'm yeah. Yeah. So so you know, from fifty to seventy five you could do the thing you wanted to do. Yeah, you know, still a quarter century. That's still a long time. Yeah, good stuff. But do it. I mean if it makes you happy, go do it. Go get it. Yeah, you've already demonstrated, right, that it's not about the money because you quit your corporate job some years ago to go do something else. Right? Yeah. Or presumably you put that in there because right. you're a little less money. But uh, yeah. Good stuff. We had this one in the queue for a while. I wanted to address this one. We're actually starting to get some calls on the Haven Lifeline. We have a couple. But join them. If you'd like us to answer your question, head to stackymedjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and uh, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to you. Thanks to Nikki for that question. Doug also brings down the mail. We got this mail from Jason. Jason says, Joe and OG, thanks for a great show over the years. Maybe someday you guys will make it a daily show. And now I'm just being greedy. Yes, yes you are. Imagine if we had this as a daily show. Huh. What little hair you have left would be instantly gone. Yeah. I was up till 1 a.m. last night working on the three-day-a-week show, so I can't imagine that. I'm contemplating withdrawing about 150000 of Roth contributions into my taxable account, start a 4% withdrawal annually, and partially retire early. My dilemma is that I'd then lose out on the tax-free growth that these contributions would provide inside the Roth, but I'd need to move the money to the taxable if I were to start making withdrawals as I'm in my early 30s and would otherwise likely deplete the taxable account before age 60. Are there loopholes I could take advantage of to leave the money inside the Roth and then when needed, say in my 40s, I could withdraw it plus the earnings tax and penalty free? Would the Rule 72 apply to Roth earnings? Gracias from Jason. Um, interesting dilemma. Good job, Jason, wanting to partially retire in your early 30s. Good work. A lot of moving parts here. I don't know how in God's name he has 150,000 of contributions inside a Roth and in his early 30s. Mathematically, I don't think that works. Well, I mean, it depends on what he invested in, right? If he hit the jackpot on some but investment. But it's Oh, on contributions. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could do the, does he do the super Roth for a couple of years? I don't know. We'll go with it. But I've, uh, my spidey sense is tingling here. Yeah. What I mean, do you, you think? Put 5,500 a year in. If he's 35, he's maybe been doing that for 20 years. Why do you have to take it out and put it in the not qualified account? Because he wants to start paying himself money to make up for the uh, money that he's, because uh, he's going to partially, yeah, partially retire. So why can't he just take it out of the Roth whenever he wants? Yeah, that's just what I, that's what I was thinking. There. He doesn't have to use the rule 72, number one. Rule 72 doesn't apply here. It doesn't that's, apply that's at all. A, he can take doubling concept. He can take the money out as he needs it. Still no taxes, still no penalties. As, you can take out your contributions at any time. As long as it's your contribution. Yeah, whatever your contribution is, you can take out. Now, if he's talking about, what if he's talking about the earnings? Penalty. Yeah. Before 59 and a half. Can you use uh, 72T, I think is what he's talking about, SCPP? I guess, but I don't know why you'd want to. That, that's it gets, it's a it gets, pretty long time. The ugly. math doesn't really work out that well over a long period of time on that. And, and the reason why is because the, the IRS uses current interest rates to factor that because they don't want the account to go to zero before you turn 59. So even though you can look at the account and go, well, yeah, I'll get, you know, 8% a year. The IRS is using a charge rate of like 2.1 or something. So 
it's going to be a much much lower lower distribution. The other frustrating thing here is that you and I both know too that the tax sheltering that the Roth provides because of the fact that it's after tax money already meaning it's already been taxed and you're putting it in the big benefit is is that you get to compound it never being taxed again. Roths are better having the money in there longer. So generally, I'll try to take money out of other pots and let the Roth get more and more of that tax advantage through compounding, right? Mm-hmm. So taking it out of the Roth is uh, would not be would not be my first choice if he's got other buckets. I think I think it. Well, other and, and if and, and he said he's in his early thirties, I think. Yes. So I wonder what the computation would be to stick with the plan, right? Like whatever he, you know, obviously saved a good deal of money over the last decade or so, you know, and and uh, had good investment success, but. What happens? What happens if you run that out the next seven years? Yeah, you know, get to forty, right? With your contributions, with the money that you have, that'll double one more time, and now you're in a whole, whole different spot. I think um, I've had this happen a number of times. I'm sure you did too when you were an advisor, where people are so hell bent on retiring early that it becomes much more riskier, much riskier. Many more riskies. Be, I don't know how really be, you'd say that. You'd be many, many much risky. There That's you go. What I'm That's for. it. And simply by waiting just a little bit longer, you eliminate all that risk of running out of money is what I'm talking about. You know, I had a number of clients that retired in in their early 50s, you know, in 2006, 2007, and 2000. And of course, you know, we never know what the future is going to hold market-wise. But they got unlucky, right? And they retired so early that if they would have just hung out for like another five years, they would have saved five years worth of more money. That money would have almost doubled one more time. And now they have no shot of ever running out. Yeah. But- so my, my concern, this whole financial independence early thing, is that people are underappreciating like what we talk about all the time, which is that doubling, you know, that one more double, right? Yeah. Well, Brandon, the mad scientist, and I talked about it when I talked to him, which is that I've, I've seen some of the math that some people do that are part of the fire movement, and, and they're, they're not doing the right math. Like, like, they are, it is such incomplete math. They're not thinking about inflation. They're not thinking about taxation. Um, uh, it just, everything and I is, like the sabbatical thing, right? I, like, some people are like, well, I'll just take some time off, and then I'll come back to work and stuff like that. Maybe that's easy to do if the economy is yes, strong. yes. Maybe it's not easy to do. You got to keep your skills up and that sort of thing. Well, and I do like what Jason's saying, which is, you know, maybe I don't fully retire. Maybe I do what I want to do, but do yeah, it on a 32 hour yes, week, uh, yeah. 32 hour weeks instead of instead of 40. Sure. I bet that if you're just kind of easing off the gas, if you're going from like a 40 hour work week to a 32 hour work week, you can do that with living expenses without having to dive into your savings. Yeah. Good stuff, Jason. Thanks for the question. If you've got a question for us, you can uh, write us a letter. Uh, how you do that, you go to stackingbenjamins.com. Across the top, it says questions for the show, and you just click on that. You'll see the Haven Lifeline first. Best way to get on the show is to send us a voicemail, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, or you can also send emails to me, joe at stackingbenjamins.com. Thanks to everybody also who's left us a review, some nice reviews lately. Big thanks to everybody who's taken the time to do that. It shows people new to the show, just what they're getting into with the Stacking Benjamins show. Man, there's a few of these. I don't even know where I've left off. I think 
I think I didn't do this one from Eric Bison. Five stars, highly recommend. Stacky Benjamin shares inspiring, actionable, and fun lessons to help you succeed financially. Highly recommend listening if you want the knowledge and mindsets to reach your financial goals, all while living your best life. Not sure how much of that we do, OG. Will it I was say, that sounds like we paid for that one. I know. Holy, holy cow. That's fantastic. Eric, uh, the good news is mom thinks we're doing uh, good work down here because of what you wrote. So thank you very much. Also, if you need good help in your corner and you don't know where to turn, guess what? OG is taking clients. So you can head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash the letter O and then the letter G. Hit return and guess what? That takes you to OG's schedule and you will get time with him to talk about what it would take to get him in your corner working with you toward your financial goals. Uh, man, coming up on Wednesday, our big 500th episode, and it's a top five. Cece, our uh, good friend Cece, was asking, when are you going to do a top five again? Well, guess what? Uh, top five lessons that have most resonated from guests, from headlines over the last uh, 500 episodes. So if you're looking for what, have, uh, what can you learn from this show? Well, guess what? We're actually going to tell you uh, on Wednesday. So thanks for that. All right, Doug, take it away. Sure, Joe. Go back to that mental nap you were taking, and I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, sure, Beyonce and Jay-Z are spending money like they're the creator of the chop tooth, but they have lots of money to spend. Here's a good lesson. Spend money based on your income and your budget, not because someone else is able to buy things that would put you in the poorhouse. Second, Shannon Allen's story is an important one. Identity theft is real, and you need to work hard to protect your identity and your money. While you can't protect yourself against all the bad people out there, you shouldn't make it easy for them. But the big lesson? Never trust those likable Russians. Somehow, that money I sent for the chop tooth still never made it there, even though I verified the bank account three times. Worse yet, I just saw a product on Amazon that looks exactly like mine called the chip tooth for a buck ninety-nine. Unbelievable. Special thanks to Jamie Wise for stopping by. You'll find more on the Buzz Index at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash buzz. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Kathleen Selmans handles design, newsletter, and classroom opportunities. If you'd like to learn more, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm wondering if KY Jelly is actually made in Kentucky. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Does anybody else spend hours wondering what Kenny Loggins is doing on any given Tuesday morning? Oh no, that's just me?
You've been seeing a few movies. You've been seeing I have found myself on uh, a number of aeroplanes. Excellent. So far in the last uh, few weeks. And um, trend's not stopping. Got a few more flights scheduled, but gives me my movie catch-up time. Yes, and well, this is one that I wanted to see when it was out, and I missed it from 2016. It stars Jessica Chastain, and it's called Miss Sloan. Lobbying is about foresight. About anticipating your opponent's moves. She's your enemy now. And devising countermeasures. How the hell did she manage that? You're a piece of work, Elizabeth. I was hired to win. I use whatever resource I have. You want to lead the fight on gun control? There's over five million of us, and we're armed. Start an inquisition. Start the inquisition, OG. Man, she seems uh, cruel and uh, vicious. So I had no interest in seeing this movie when I saw the previews of it. They really do a heavy-handed job a number of times of beating you on the head with the message. And for good or for bad, whatever your position is, and I know you don't like this as well, I don't care for movies that beat me on the head with whatever their message is, we, whether we, I like the message or not. Yep, whenever we've like, talked about a, mess, or a movie we don't like, it's because it beat you over the head. Yes, it's like, you know, whether, I mean, you heard the preview, it's about gun control. So whether you're for gun control or against it, I, I have my personal view, you have yours, everybody has theirs. I don't need I don't need you to smash me on the head with whatever you're trying to get across on the movie. Okay, that being all said, this movie is awesome. Really, I didn't think you were going there. So turn off that all the messaging about what's going on and just watch it for what she does as a lobbyist. So she's at this big lobbying firm in D.C. Always gets whatever she wants. Right? She she wants this bill to pass. She knows how to make it work. She wants this bill to pass. She knows how to make it work. And early in the movie, she's presented with this opportunity to work for the NRA. And her firm has been trying to reel in this big fish, right? The NRA is a big fish. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, allegedly. And so she takes it. She doesn't want to meet with the guy, but her boss says, come on, just sit down, listen to what they have to say. And this, and you know, it's a room full of old white dudes that come up with this message of here's how. We're going to go after women for guns, right? And she like literally laughs in this dude's face and says, you have no idea what the hell you're talking about, right? And walks out. Her boss is all peed off at her about, you know, don't make fun of the the money, basically, right? We're trying to land this whale. They've got all this money to spend on on campaigning, right? On lobbying. And we're, you're standing in the way of collecting it. And she goes, you know what? I quit. I'm going to go work for the opposition. So she goes to work for the firm, the little firm that's trying to defeat the NRA. And, you know, it doesn't really go very well because she doesn't have the resources that the big firm did and all that sort of stuff. And so she kind of has up her sleeve some bags of tricks that she does. Some are sinister. Some are well thought out. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a it's a really, really interesting movie all the way to the very last second of the movie. So, wow. I'm not going to say anything about like any twists surprises or, or anything like that, but um, but there must be some. You got to get past the whole 
NRA versus gun control thing that happens where, you, you know, again, regardless, or as Doug likes to say, irregardless right. of your, <laughs> of your personal opinion on the matter, there are definitely some eye roll moments where you're like, come on, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, guns are important. Yeah, oh, just gosh, leave it alone. Guns are the devil, you know, whatever yes. the message is. Right, so, right, right. but get past all that. It's a, this is a fantastic movie. Joe, you'll love this. Awesome. Yeah. I you'll can't wait. I, this is definitely on my list. All right. Uh, you know what? You've got another one, but we got to go. This show's running way long. We'll see everybody cool. on here Wednesday. 500th episode. See you Wednesday. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.